0: and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group, American National Insurance, and Spiritless. The holidays are fast approaching, and choosing the right wine to pair with your holiday meal can be intimidating, but it doesn't have to be complicated. Holiday meals can be a little heavy, so you want to choose wines that are graceful and balanced. Sanford Winery in Santa Barbara County offers a delightful Chardonnay and a delicious Pinot Noir. Both pair beautifully with your fall favorites and holiday meals. Sanford's award-winning wines are elegant, sophisticated, and show-stopping. You can purchase Sanford's wines on Uncork.com. Listeners of To Dine For The Podcast will receive a 15% discount now through December 15th by entering promo code TODINEFOR at checkout. Cheers. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For. People who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. If you listen to this podcast, you know I love a great founder story. That's why I love the story of Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. Three young women from Louisville, Kentucky, who had the idea for a healthier bourbon. Healthier in the sense it has no alcohol. So you can have an evening cocktail with no guilt and almost no calories. It is so delicious. I love to squeeze an orange slice, a couple of dashes of bitters, shake it with ice, and then strain it into a beautiful glass and just kick back. If you'd like to try a bottle of Spiritless, you can use promo code TODINEFOR to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most innovative and fascinating minds at their favorite restaurant. On this week's podcast is the Chief People Officer for Coca-Cola, Lisa Chang.
1: If you really want to understand what inclusion is, Mm -hmm. you have to have conversations and dialogue and create an environment of trust.
0: Lisa Chang is the Chief People Officer for the Coca-Cola Company, overseeing the company's talent and people strategies, culture, and diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. In her role, which she has held since 2019, she is responsible for leading the company's global people strategy, aligned to the company's purpose of refreshing the world and making a difference. Chang and her team are focused on creating an environment where employees can thrive and equip the organization to win. In the midst of the great resignation and the changing face of work culture, I can think of no better person to talk to about her career and what's ahead for all of us than Lisa. She begins by sharing her favorite restaurant, a Taiwanese dumpling house called Din Tai Fung, and why she loves it. Your favorite restaurant is Din Tai Fung, where they make incredible
1: dumplings. Why is this restaurant so important to you? Yes, Din Tai Fung. Um, It's uh, a restaurant that started in Taiwan, so it has meaning because my family is originally from Taiwan. But also because the art of making dumplings is something that has been passed down for generations in my family. And it's something that we do uh, together as a family. And it started with, you know, my grandparents and my parents making the dough and rolling the dough and the kids filling dumplings and all of us learning how to make the perfect pinches on the dumplings. It's something that brings our family together. It's something that um, not only tastes delicious, but brings, um, you know, passes us down from generation to generation. And to this day, we still do it uh, when we get together for holidays and vacations. And it's just the, the whole art of making dumplings, being together and eating them together um, is a really important part. And that's why these dumplings are so important to us. And Dinh Fung makes the best dumplings in the world.
0: So would you say that the the idea of of the dumplings and the idea of this food is really like your family coming to the fore, all the memories of your childhood, what's really special to you, it all starts uh, at a restaurant like this?
1: Yes. And I think because you chose to do the podcast, because it is around food is what brings people together. And that's definitely a mantra in my family. Every fat family gathering is around food. And the dumplings do hold special meaning. And the last thing I was going to say is that we teach all the children to make dumplings from the time they're literally able to pick up the dough in their fingers. As little, little babies, they're making the dumplings and it just kind of goes. And so it is a very special thing. But like you said, it does bring our family together. And is something that we um, share um, not only in the tummy, but sort of in the heart.
0: And there's something about sitting down at a table and connecting over food that I think is incredibly powerful, whether that's in a family or whether that's in a professional setting. Your entire career has been around HR. It's been around inclusion and equity. And so it really, I felt like this podcast and sort of the premise of this platform really made sense to do this interview with you because that's really at the heart of what you do, correct? Yes. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and your family and really how that shaped you.
1: Yeah, sure. I I grew up in a really small town in Southwest Virginia called Bristol. Uh, I was born in an even smaller town called Clifton Forge, Virginia. My father was an immigrant, came to the U.S. to study advanced education, was getting his master's degree and subsequently his Ph.D. So we lived in these small towns where he was able to get scholarships. And so my family grew up in this tiny little town, the community sort of embraced us, adopted us. And we're sort of one of those traditional Asian families that grew up very American, Mm -hmm. but yet we were the only ones that were different. Mm. And so throughout my upbringing and into my career, it's always been this one of, you know, I'm American, but yet I look different and my background is different and my family's different, but yet you know, I look and sound very American. And so that has been sort of the root of trying to balance what I bring that's different along with where people can relate to the experiences that I've had growing up in a small town.
0: That's really interesting, because I think a lot of people have had that experience. What, how did, what helped you? Was it, was it something your parents said? When you were in an environment where no one else looked like you, what helped you survive and thrive?
1: Well, I think what a lot of immigrant families do is they really tell you to just kind of put your head down and do the work, right? Mm -hmm. So first thing that my parents wanted us to do was, you know, I'd say fit in, meaning don't try to cause waves, make sure that you're just kind of being, you know, the golden rule, treat people the way you want to be treated Mm -hmm. um, and just try to, you know, become as much of a part of the community as you can. The one thing I will say that I learned from my parents, particularly my father, who is a PhD metallurgical engineer and has, you know, worked his way from, you know, the front lines of a uh, production line all the way up to starting his own company is always treat people equitably, regardless of whether they're the janitor or they're the CEO. Mm -hmm. And so in my family, we were always taught to treat people with respect. And I think that's one of the things that sort of has carried over for me being in, the corporate world now is really hierarchy and titles and all that are really not the way you determine how you treat people. You treat people as humans and you treat them with kindness and respect. So I think that was a big part of it because as we assimilated, if you will, into the culture in you know Southwest Virginia, a small little town, we just tried to be you know kind, welcoming people Mm -hmm. in hopes people would see us no different than the neighbor on the other side of the fence.
0: As you started your career and tried to determine, you know, what direction to take, why did you choose HR? And what was it about that particular career lane that really appealed to you?
1: Well, the truth is, um, I'm a failed medical student. (laughs) Like probably 90% of Asian children um, or immigrant children, you know, the the, the life plan for the children is, you know, go to medical school, go to law school, you know, something like that. And I um, was on the path of medical school because that was my chosen profession, if you will, only until I realized that the sight of blood makes me queasy. I don't like hospitals. (laughs) I don't like needles. And I thought, okay, this could be a little bit of a problem. And so about my second year in college was when I sort of had the conversation with my father saying, you know, I don't don't really think I'm cut out for this medicine thing. Mm -hmm. And that landed me sort of in a liberal arts degree, um, which I studied communications. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. I mean, the only options back then were try to be a journalist Mm -hmm. um, or a teacher or, you know, I, I really didn't know. And what I was very fortunate about is I actually landed an internship with a company and they put me in the HR department or fondly known as personnel back in those days. And that actually was my first exposure to what, what is, what is HR? What is personnel? And I had a really wonderful experience. There was actually a female executive who was running HR and she was fierce. I mean, I just watched her in awe. What was her name? Dorothy Michener um, Mm -hmm. was the name of the woman that was sort of my direct manager's manager, if you will. And she just, she commanded the room. She definitely had a seat at the table Mm -hmm. in this manufacturing plant environment, yet they listened to her. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to work on recruiting and some of the other HR policies and some of the other things. And at the time I thought, well, you know, maybe I could do this, you know, I didn't really Oh, what HR was, but the more I learned about it, the more I thought, okay, it's business, which I I really liked, but it was the people side of business, which I oh, liked. Interesting. So that's sort of what led me there. Not that yeah. I would then, 30 years later, make an entire career out of it.
0: So in those early days, as you're kind of working your way up in the world of HR, and you worked at many different companies uh, in and around Atlanta, what are you learning about how to get a seat at the table that really has served you well and has really led to some of your success in Coca-Cola?
1: I think the most important thing, really, in any function, but certainly in HR, which has historically been seen as sort of a soft stuff, is you really have to know the business and you really have to show up as a contributor to the business, regardless of what position you're in, because that's what earns you a seat at the table, not the position itself, but the knowledge that you bring. And so because my father was an entrepreneur, and because I had a strong interest in sort of learning the business, that's sort of what brought me to the table was, I was able to sit there and contribute and talk about the business. But then it was through the lens of, well, and if we think about how this translates into our people, what does that do to our recruiting strategy? What does that do to our learning strategy? Do we have the right leaders in place? And then I, I went into sort of the function of HR, but at the root of it was the conversation around the business. And I think that that hasn't changed. I think, mm-hmm. you know, positions are positions, but I think business is the center of focus mm-hmm. and being able to have a seat at the table is really about having that conversation of what's the implication to the people through the lens of, of the business. And I've been in many organizations where there have been heads of HR that functionally had a seat at the table, but actually didn't. Mm-hmm. That's again, because they may have on the, on the piece of paper reported to the CEO or the head of um, the company, but they didn't actually bring the strategy with them. They sort of waited to be told what to do. Well, that's so
0: fascinating, Lisa. There's a lot of subtlety to what you what you just said, but a lot of wisdom. And that is to really fully understand the business from every different angle. It's not you're not just in charge of HR, and don't think of it that way. Even though HR is crucial. I I would argue, the most crucial part of any business. But you have to fully have a 360 view of the business. Is that what you're saying?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And you have to learn not only about your own business, but about the business ecosystem, which includes competitors, Mm. right? So that's one of the things that I always try to do is, you know, while I'm competing for talent, we're also competing on the business model side, it's important to know What's the competitive landscape and what what are the competitors doing that might affect the way our business operates?
0: We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. But with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre order your bottle today at Spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. The holidays are fast approaching, and choosing the right wine to pair with your holiday meal can be intimidating. But it doesn't have to be complicated. Holiday meals can be a little heavy, so you want to choose wines that are graceful and balanced. Sanford Winery in Santa Barbara County offers a delightful Chardonnay and a delicious Pinot Noir. Both pair beautifully with your fall favorites and holiday meals. Sanford's award-winning wines are elegant, sophisticated, and show-stopping. You can purchase Sanford's wines on Uncork.com. Listeners of To Dine For The Podcast will receive a 15% discount now through December 15th by entering promo code to dine for at checkout. Cheers. Now back to our conversation. I've been so excited to talk to you today because I really feel like there's so much on the table, so to speak, in terms of the future of work, virtual work versus non virtual work. Here you sit as leading HR, as the chief people officer for Coca Cola. What is your take? on, and this is a broad question, but I, I say it broadly, because I really want you to get specific in your answer. And that is, what do you think the future of work looks, given all that we've been through over the past year and a half to two
1: years? Well, I, I think, you know, it's important, as you said, subtle, but important, even the question you're asking, what is the future of work? Mm. You didn't ask me the future of the workplace mm-hmm. space where I sit, how often I'm in the office, The future of work is the work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what's important about that is we are all learning that work can be done anywhere. We sort of knew that, but the pandemic forced us into really proving that's true. It sure did. You know, very quickly overnight, we all went into this virtual world. And as you can see, I'm still working from my home office. So we are still not fully back into the office here at our corporate offices after, you know, over a year and a half now. But work is getting done. And so what we're trying to focus on and where I think the future is headed is how do we get people to focus on the principle of work and when does coming together make sense and when is it important Mm -hmm. and when is it okay and quite frankly, more productive to work alone? Do you find it
0: more productive to work alone or do you prefer to be in person?
1: I think it depends on the work. So obviously, if I'm trying to work on a strategy document, if I'm working on the budget, if I have something that I need lots of concentration on, working alone is far more productive because I can kind of deep dive and, and go into it. But if I'm working on something that's more iterative or collaborative or I want feedback or I, if I want, quite frankly, just human energy, yes. um, being in a room with other people is far more productive and energizing and, and you see that iteration happening much more real time. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the future of work is deciding and defining coming together, going apart, bringing ourselves together as communities. And so I think that while there's been a lot of speculation about, well, is it two days in the office? Is it three days? Is it once a month? Is it whatever? I think the answer is quite frankly, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And it's depend on the work, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll just take myself, for example, there are some weeks that I may be in the office five days a week. Mm -hmm. And it's going to depend on what's happening. We have board meetings, we have town halls, we have things where, you know, just makes sense and it's far more productive for the leadership team to be together. And then there are weeks and months, quite frankly, where if we're all off kind of doing the things we need to be doing and I manage, as you said, a global team and I've got people all over the world and I'm going to have calls with people in Asia at 10 o'clock at night, well, I'm going to do that from home. Sure, sure. We don't know the exact science of what it's going to be. But what I think it's going to take is for people to give each other a little bit of grace and space to learn. Like, let's just iteratively learn and figure it out. And guess what? If it doesn't work, we'll change it. And that's Mm -hmm. the thing we've definitely learned through Mm -hmm. COVID, right, is that once you get used to something, it changes. And Mm -hmm. so that resilience that we developed during COVID, I think, is going to have to carry forward.
0: What about corporate culture? You know, Coca-Cola has always been known for its wonderful corporate culture, but how do you shape it when so much of your workforce is working from home? And, and what, what specifically, what do you do positively to make sure that you maintain that corporate culture?
1: That, that has been the biggest challenge, especially for new people joining a company. Sure. I the culture is so important and learning the sort of idiosyncrasies of the workplace. And you don't have the water cooler. And you don't have the serendipitous meetings in the cafeteria. So that, I think, is going to be really hard to replace virtually. And we are finding that. Yes. But I do think that what we did during the pandemic that a lot of companies did is we um, did more frequent communications. Mm-hmm. We did a lot more town halls. We did a lot more, um, less scripted, if you will. It wasn't just a bunch of talking heads, but we actually did more Q&A, let people chat in questions, and we tried to answer them real time to kind of promote a more open, transparent environment. Um, We've tried a few things more virtually. We've had a couple of leadership conferences that have been virtual, and we've been able to reach far more many people than we did by bringing people together in person, because obviously there's always logistical limitations when you try to have an in-person conference. But when it's virtual, we're we're almost limitless in the number of people that we can invite to a virtual conference. So we're trying to take advantage of that. And then I think now that things are hopefully starting to get a little bit better as the world opens back up, Mm -hmm. are starting to get together a little bit more in smaller groups. And we'll hopefully kind of expand that and people can start to, Supplement, if you will, and it won't be all remote or all in person, but some combination of the two. Mm -hmm. I I agree with you. I think especially when you're new in an organization, I mean, you want the excitement of the community and and people. people. Yeah. You have such
0: a unique perspective growing up, as you said, in Virginia, being one of only a few Asian faces that you saw. I'm just wondering how that experience shaped how you view inclusion in the workplace? And what do you find is working when it comes to inclusion and quality in the workplace?
1: I think what has resonated extremely pronounced for me is just, you don't actually know what any individual's experience is, Mm. unless you ask them or unless they voluntarily disclose.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: The more conversations I have with people, again, whether they're Asian, Hispanic, Black, is unless you have a conversation with them, you can't assume that you know what their personal situation is, right? Did I come from an immigrant family? Have my family's been here for generations? Have I had an experience with a social justice issue that was so personal to me that it's affected the way I uh, respond to reactions? And, And I think that's one good thing that's come out of the COVID virtual environment is we've gotten to know each other on a level personally that is actually quite hard to do in an office environment because we all go to the office and we're sort of in the same consistent environment. And we just assume that everybody is what they are when they show up in the office and this virtual world. I mean, you you have a view into my home. Mm-hmm, um, right. Sometimes you see my animals and my kids or <laughs> right. the chaos that's happening. And, you know, you're experiencing personal things. I am, um, My mother underwent breast cancer surgery and chemotherapy Mm. treatments during the pandemic. Mm. And if not for the fact that I was trying to balance working virtually and caring for her, I probably would not have shared that with a lot of people. Right. As I was in this environment where literally I was working remotely in one room and she was recovering in the other, it became sort of just part of sharing. So you have a far greater appreciation that individual people bring with them that entire Experience of their life to work, and yes, so that contextualizes the interaction you have with them.
0: Well, and also you sharing that uh, personal story about your mother and the fact that you personally are going through a lot really humanizes you. as being the chief, you know, human people officer, right? There is no better way to connect with a with a global community of Coca Cola employees than to really share what's going on in your life, so that they too feel like they can do the same.
1: We all have the same struggles, you know, lots of people go through different things. But I think, again, the the pandemic, I think, shared to me that when you if you really want to understand what inclusion is, Mm -hmm. you have to have conversations and dialogue and create an environment of trust and ask each other questions. So when the Black Lives Matter situation was happening here, we did a lot of town halls and sessions to kind of just allow employees to share what they were feeling. And again, this was all virtual did the same thing when the Asian hate happened here in Mm -hmm. Atlanta. And only by having those conversations and allowing people to, as you said, be vulnerable and Mm -hmm. share their personal stories, were you able to gain an appreciation for what they might be going through? Mm -hmm. And the recognition that, again, on the surface, she may look like this completely put together person that, you know, nothing's going to bother her. But underneath, you see the fragility of the personal experiences and circumstances that that person may have had where something like that may have affected them personally.
0: It's really fascinating, because I imagine that a lot of people will listen to this podcast who you know work in an executive role or work in the world of H R and want to create a more inclusive environment. You touch on a couple of really good points already, which is really to have the conversations and to have open communication and almost to over communicate to the sense so so you really can understand your employees. Beyond that, what kind of advice would you give to another person who has the same role in a maybe medium to smaller company about creating a more inclusive and equal
1: environment? Yeah, I think HR is a little bit tricky at times because we we feel the responsibility to mitigate risk in our organization. Obviously, that's an understood part of the role, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I I don't think you have to choose between doing the right thing and mitigating risk. And the right thing is to look at people as humans. Right. Mm -hmm. And humans have experiences and emotions and allowing people the space to experience that is really important. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it gets a little tricky because especially in the world that we live in with social media and a lot of things, you know, we obviously have to protect where conversations happen, or sometimes discussions that occur. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, still being sympathetic and empathetic and, you know, reaching out to that person separately and saying, Hey, I know you're hurting. Let's talk about why that platform might not be the best place to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Can we have this conversation in private? Or can, is there anything we can do to help allay concerns that you have that isn't sort of in this public forum, right? That's just an example. But I think it really is about the basic roles of um, being human and just understanding that it, it would be a lot easier if we were all mechanical robots and we could just program you to do what we want you to do and say what we ought to say when we want to, but we aren't, right? And so you can't manage people like they are, right? Here's the rule: don't break it if that were the case, it would be way too easy. And we would not have nearly as robust of a world that we have today. Cause we'd all be doing the same things. but I think balancing that understanding it and not being so binary with our decisions, but understanding and contextualizing each situation and just trying to put yourself in that person's shoes. Like what is it that has them so upset mm-hmm. and how might I be able to help and you know, I worked previously for a sports organization here in Atlanta that I know you're familiar with, A and B Group. And one of the things that um, I worked on with the team at the time was we were going through uh, the social justice issues with the NFL and the kneeling, mm-hmm. um, as you know. And our owner and founder Arthur Blank called the players together and said, um, you know, he used the terms, "Let's turn protest into progress." Mm. So that really stuck with me as a mantra of when you try to understand when people are upset about something. If you understand why they're upset and you can help them get a platform to resolve that, Mm -hmm. that goes a long way in building trust. You might might not always land in a place where you agree, Mm -hmm. but if you can turn that protest to progress, that's a step in the right direction. I know one of your passion points
0: is helping women find a seat at the table in in any business setting, especially corporate America. I'd love to hear kind of what you've learned And what you try to impart to younger women as they begin their careers to make sure that they are really, you know, amplifying who they are and uh, making sure that their journey to get wherever they're going is one that is impactful and productive.
1: Well, I think you've heard it probably a million times, but I think the one thing that women still carry more so than our male counterparts is that fear of the unknown and fear of the imposter syndrome, which is, am I really ready? Mm -hmm. Do I have the right experience? What if I don't know the answer? You know, I don't want to mess up or I don't, you know, failure is not an option, et cetera, et cetera. And so my advice has always been that no one's perfect. No one has all the answers. And what's the worst thing that could happen? You Mm -hmm. don't succeed but at least you tried Mm. Um, and that experience prepares you for the next and to sort of not be afraid of failure. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was Wayne Gretzky that says you miss a hundred percent of the shots you never take. Yes. So, Like why not give yourself at least some percentage of success by taking the shot and seeing what you can get. And at a minimum, you've gained an experience that you didn't have before. Mm. And on the upside, hopefully, you know, you'll be successful and you'll go on to even bigger and better things.
0: Would I graduated college at the late 90s, and there was sort of a drumbeat, you know, from a vibe perspective of to make money and to be successful. And now it's so interesting, especially talking to younger generations, that there is much more of an emphasis on personal fulfillment, happiness, and having an impact in the job that you have. How does that shape your role and also recruiting efforts for Coca-Cola?
1: Yeah, well, I think for me, purpose and values are extremely important. And I fortunately was able to discover that fairly early in my career, that I definitely just do better work in an environment where I feel connected, both from a purpose and a mission and a values standpoint. And so, you know, I think what we have been trying to do is we, we launched our purpose back in 2019 before the pandemic, which is to refresh the world and make a difference. Mm-hmm. You go back and look at the history of Coca-Cola, uh, which I know, you know, well, as a scholar, we um we've always been about refreshing the world, but it was sort of done in the sense of, you know, refreshing the palate. And when we relaunched our purpose back in 2019. The word refresh to us was a much more holistic refresh, Mm. the palate, the mind, the spirit, et cetera. And then making a difference is what we added. And so to your point, this making a difference piece in the communities, in the customers and the employees was an important part because Coke has always been about that. We've always been an important contributor to our communities. And that's something that is a legacy for us that we want to continue. And we're finding that using our purpose as a recruiting tool is resonating because people see the power that a brand like ours has. We're in over 200 countries. We're able to have meaningful impact in lots of different ways, whether it's on a sustainability side. We had a big initiative to empower five million women through economic um, means, Um, our sustainability efforts. Uh, to reduce plastic and water and um, some of the other things that we're doing. Only a company uh, of the size and scale that we are that has a purpose to make a difference can do that. And that seems to resonate with people.
0: Lisa, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. I really appreciate your time. I wish we were having dumplings at your favorite restaurant. That would be so much more fun. But I really do appreciate your time so very much.
1: Thank you, Kate. It was a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Thanks for listening to To Dine For the podcast. For more information on the show, the guests and the podcast, head to todinefor.tv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv tv and Facebook at to Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the podcast, American National Spiritless and Terluto Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Goldner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers. Stay hungry and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon.
1: Hold up. What was that?